Matt Terry and I worked together at Liquid Web for nearly a decade. In 2015, after we sold Liquid Web, I left the company, but Matt kept working there. Around that same time, Matt Terry met Michelle Rogers, and they began to date. In 2017, they had a child together. On St. Patrick's Day of 2017, Matt Terry violently attacked Michelle in the home that they shared together while the newborn son was in the house. Matt stabbed Michelle seven times, including in her throat and her upper body. He even bit her face. Michelle was so badly beaten that she couldn't see because her contact lenses were full of blood. Miraculously, Michelle survived that incident, but her nightmare didn't end there. Somehow, Matt ended up only receiving three years in prison for this horrific attack. Michelle pleaded with the parole board, the judge, the prosecutors, to not let Matt Terry out of prison. Michelle warned everyone that if Matt Terry was let out of prison, that he would hurt someone again. Michelle even went so far as to proactively warn Matt Terry's new girlfriend, Kay Baker, that she may be his next victim. Despite Michelle's warnings, Matt Terry moved to Florida to live with Kay Baker and her two children. Within five months of Matt Terry's release from parole, he murdered Kay Baker by nearly decapitating her and stabbing her multiple times. Michelle's prediction turned out to be hauntingly accurate. Today I talk with Michelle Rogers so that she can share her story. So I am Michelle Rogers. Uh, I, I used to live in um, a small town near Lansing, Michigan back in 2017. Um, at that time, I was living with Matthew Terry in a house um, just behind Sparrow Hospital, sort of. There was a subdivision back there. Um, and we lived there with our our son. Uh, he, re he was about nine months old at the time. And my oldest son, who is now 14, he was, I think, seven at the time that we lived at the house. So, you know, Matt and I had originally met in 2015. So we, we met on a dating app, I think, in, in May of 2015. So it was a couple of weeks, maybe a week before Christmas, um, December of 2016. Um, Matt had closed on a house that we had moved into just before Christmas. And everything seemed to be, you know, going okay. Um there were a lot of struggles in the relationship. I, I definitely wasn't happy in the relationship, but I felt like I had to at least try for my son, for our son, because I just, I, I don't know. Um, I just thought it would be better having a dad around. Um, so I tried and, you know, we had Christmas there. Everything seemed all right. And then March rolled around. So, um, so on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th of 2017, uh, we had arranged for my oldest son to go to his dad's that, that Friday. Uh, he was going to stay with him that weekend, so he was not home the whole day. And our youngest child, we took to Matt's parents, so they lived just a couple miles down the road from us. The intent was that, you know, we would go out with Matt's friends for St. Patrick's Day, take the day off work. We would come home mid-afternoon, five, six o'clock, and go to bed fairly early because Matt had to be up at seven o'clock in the morning for a wrestling tournament the next day. He was a wrestling coach. Um, so that was sort of the plan. And so we took the baby to his parents' house. My son went off to his dad's. 
we went together to go to Eastwood Town Center, um, which is what just north of Lansing, and met at a place called Clada's Irish Pub. And then we decided what to do next. So after that, we all decided to go downtown Lansing. And um, so we went to a couple other places and we ended up, um, we ended up at a, another bar that had and again, I, I forget the name now, so I apologize. But it was a, it was a it was a bar that was connected to a couple of other bars, and there was like a hallway that would connect them. Um, so I was I was sitting in the one bar waiting for him. I, I couldn't find him at one point, and it was getting to be five six o'clock at night. I was getting annoyed. I wanted to go and um, couldn't find him. So I went out of this bar back into the hallway and just started looking in the other bars to see if I could find him anywhere. And I looked in the one bar and he wasn't there. And then I went to, um, there was kind of like this dance club that wasn't really open yet that was attached as well. And and I kind of looked in there, peeked in there and he was just wandering around, stumbling all over himself and clearly, clearly drunk. And I said, hey, you know what? We have to go, we have to pick up our son. And when he spoke, uh, it was just all gibberish. There was no, <laughs> no words in what he spoke. It was just, he was clearly just belligerent and obliterated. And um, at that point, I had seen it too many times. I, it was just kind of the last straw. And I just said, whatever. And I, I left and I grabbed my things and I walked home, started to walk home. And luckily, you know, the house was maybe a couple miles um, from where we were at. And I didn't really have a jacket. I remember it was starting to, it was getting chilly. It was starting to like flurry. Um, so not a ton of snow, but it was cold. And I, I remember walking home and I was crying the whole way. And I was really upset with just how, you know, how did I let myself get into this situation? How am I stuck with this person? Just, you know, thinking through all the things. Um, and I, I get home and have a sandwich, have some water, just kind of sit on the couch for a little bit. And then I got in my car because we had taken his vehicle to, to go out. So I got in my car and I drove to his parents to pick up our, our son. Um, when I got there, uh, they had questioned where Matt was. And I just kind of, I was still pretty annoyed at that point. And I just said, I don't know, you know, he's down downtown somewhere still drinking. So I'm just here to pick up our son. I'm going to take him home. And I did. I grabbed him, put him in the car, took him home. And when we got home, I fed him really quick and I, I put him upstairs to go to bed. And I was sitting on the couch watching TV and I hear a knock at the, at the back door and it was, it was Matt. And I, I just kind of was like, okay, whatever. I unlocked the door and he came in and he was still very clearly drunk, um, agitated. Um, you could tell he just wasn't, he wasn't happy. He was very pissed off at something right? Just not in a, a good mindset. And I let him in. I went and I sat back down on the couch and he was at the kitchen counter at that point, um, making a sandwich from the, the stuff that I had left out previously. So he was making some food at the counter. And then, you know, there, there's, there's some pieces that I'm missing. So I don't know if there was an argument. I don't know exactly what happened here, but I do remember the next thing was that I was standing behind the couch and he was coming at me from the kitchen. And I remember like taking my arms up and kind of bracing myself and just leaning back and saying, oh my God, what are you doing? And he started charging at me. Um, at that point, he had 
ran into me and pushed my back up into like the front door because the front door was behind me. And so he pushed me into the door and we both fell to the floor. And at that point he started punching me, um, mostly in the face, but pretty much anywhere that he could get a fist. He was just punching me and I'm, I'm trying to fight him off. Um, but you know, the best way I can really describe like what he was doing, um, he was like putting me in these wrestling moves. So like all these different types of holds and somehow I kept managing to kind of get loose. Uh, but there were a few of them where he had like had his arm wrapped around me and I was starting to see stars and starting to like black out. And again, somehow I would like manage to get out. I would, I would wriggle free. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do with how drunk he was. Right. I was just able to some, to somehow get free, but we had this fight just rolling on the floor. He's trying to get me into these moves. He's punching me. Um, I finally was able to get up and I was standing there right by the counter in the kitchen and it was kind of right where like the living room and the counter meet. And I just remember standing there and he punched me in the jaw, punched me in the face again. And I, I just looked at him and I said, Matt, why are you doing this? You're going to kill me. You know, you're going to kill me. And he knocked me back down to the floor again. And there was one point when I said, I, I love you. Why are you doing this? And he said, he said, fuck you. No, you don't. I'm going to kill you. And I was just like, I don't even know what I thought at this time. It was just like, it was more surreal than anything. It was like, is this really happening to me? Like, is this a dream? It felt like a dream. It felt like in my brain, everything was going so slow, but I know outside that's, that's not how it was. Um, just everything kind of slowed down in my head. Um, but the next thing I knew he had had me, um, I was, I was face down and the upper part of me, so like from my waist up, was on like the kitchen tile, the kitchen, I'm not, I don't remember if it was tile or linoleum, but like on the slippery floor. And then the other half of me was kind of over where the living room was carpeted. So at this point there was, there was blood everywhere um, and it was all over the floor. And he had me pushed down on the floor and I kept trying to like take my hands and push myself up and trying to push myself back so I could grip like the carpet to, to you know, get myself up off the floor. And he, he would put his weight back on me so I couldn't get a grip and my hands just kept slipping. Um, and when I did try to reach back to the carpet to get a grip, he, he physically took me and pushed me um, forward back onto that slippery floor so I couldn't get any traction to be able to lift myself up. Um, at that point, he had maneuvered me kind of like on my left side. I was laying on my left side and there was this black trash can in front of me. And at this point he was taking with both of his hands, he was taking my head and he was slamming it, the left side of my head down into the, the floor. And I remember looking at that black trash can and every time he would hit my head, everything would go dark. And then it would kind of fade back and then it would go dark again when my head would hit the floor again. And I just remember, I just remember telling myself like, don't pass out don't pass out. You have to stay awake. If you fall asleep, you're not going to wake up. And, um, and it was almost like as soon as he did all those things, it just stopped. And it was just weird. It was just like all, all of a sudden he just stopped. And I was really dizzy, really disoriented, really confused. Again, it felt like a dream. It didn't feel like, like anything real. And I was able to sit up, um, just sit up. I was kind of like holding my head down with my hand, you know, my head in my hand, just, just really trying to recover from what, what had just happened. And I hear like rustling in the kitchen and I, I didn't know what it was. It sounded like drawers, cupboards, whatever. And 
the next thing you know, he is walking behind me and he wraps his arm around my, around um, like my neck and he stabs me in the center of the throat. And I immediately grabbed my throat and I, I jumped up and I was standing and there was blood everywhere. And the only thought that went through my head at that point was, holy shit, he just stabbed me. And if he just stabbed through my throat, like I, I'm going to suffocate. I'm going to suffocate to death in this house. I have to get outside. I have to, like, I have a couple minutes maybe, right? And it was just, at that point, it was just, the mission was get outside, get outside, get outside. So I, I was able to turn around and was able to open up the door that went out to the garage. And I opened that door and I, I hit the, like, um, the button on the wall to open that large garage door to the outside. And I ran towards it, but because that door was so slow, by the time I got there, I kind of had to wait it to to come up but he was chasing after me as that door was opening and when he came out he had pushed the garage door button so that it would stop moving up so it only got maybe like a third of the way up and he's chasing me with the knife chasing me into the garage he ended up getting me again right by the door and we fell to the ground and somehow we had we had in the struggle like rolled underneath the door and we were rolling out like the driveway and it was, it was dark at this time, and um, we had rolled about halfway down the driveway, and I just kept screaming, somebody help me, he's trying to kill me, somebody help me, he's trying to kill me, he has a knife, you know, just screaming as loud as I could for as long as I could, and he at the same time is taking my head, and instead of slamming the side, he's taking it, and he's slamming the back of my head into the cement. And just over and over and over, and I'm still screaming. And, you know, I got to the point where I'd been screaming for what felt like forever. And my voice was starting to give out, you know, and I was just like, what if, what if nobody hears me? And uh, so he's slamming my head. He has the knife in his left hand and he, he reaches down and he stabs me three times in my right shoulder. And during the time he was coming down for a fourth, I reached up with my right hand and I grabbed the blade of the knife. And um, I just remember having all these thoughts, like, you know, like, so, so I knew I was going to have to pull the knife across my face. And as I was doing that, like, I'm laying on my back, he's on top of me, I, I grabbed this knife, I'm pulling it across my face. And it was, it was hard. Like, I couldn't tell you how I did it, and how I didn't injure myself. I don't know. Um, but I, I had grabbed it, and I'm pulling it across my face. And all I can think is, good God, like, hopefully he doesn't push this into your eyeball, and then you're not going to be able to see. And it was just, but I, I wasn't really concerned about that. I was just concerned about surviving, right? Getting getting the knife away from him, just doing what I can. And so I pulled that knife across my face and I was able to pull it far enough over that it fell out of his hand. And so when it fell to the ground, I sort of like kind of turned to my left side and sort of tucked it under like the best that I could so he couldn't access it as easily. And that made him really pissed off that he couldn't get it. And so he, again, was slamming my head and I'm just kind of, you know, tilting my body, trying to hold the knife under there and he's slamming my head and then he would take his hand. So he, he would, he would raise his right hand, trying to fish down that my left side, trying to find this knife. But when he would do that, that side of my body was free to lift up. And so I would try to lift up. I would try to get up and get away from him. And then he'd slam me back down with both hands. And this, this happened at least a handful of times right? Where he's trying to get the knife, he can't get the knife. Trying to get the knife, can't get the knife. 
um, I hear screams from across the street. I hear neighbors like get off of her, you know, they're on the phone with 911. Um, you, you can definitely hear them screaming all, you know, whatever they're screaming at this point. And he, like I said, he was getting very angry that he couldn't find this knife after various attempts of like fishing down my body. And because my arm was laying across my chest, trying to tuck that knife in, he had actually reached down and, and bit my arm twice trying to get me to, to let it free. And I just, I remember screaming because it hurt, but there was no way in hell I was going to, I was going to let him have that knife. Cause again, I wouldn't wake up. <laughs> um, so again, after that didn't work, then he reached down and he, he bit me twice on my left cheek, trying to get me to, to let go. And I remember that very well because it was excruciating. It was excruciating pain. And I would have bet my life that he took a chunk out of my cheek because he had bit so hard. And again, I, I still didn't let go. At this point, you could hear sirens. Um, you could hear sirens coming around the corner or wherever they were, but you could hear them. And he could hear them too, because it was almost as soon as you heard the sirens, he got up off of me. Um, you know, at the point when I was, I was really, I didn't have any fight in me left anymore. I was, I was at the point where I was laying there saying, okay, you're not going to be able to fight anymore. So in just a second, you're going to have to, you're going to have to let him have this knife and he's going to stab you and it's going to hurt and you're just going to kind of fade away. And that's what I was telling myself, like getting ready, getting ready to die in that driveway. And I I told my kids goodbye and I told them that I was so sorry that I couldn't be there, that I really tried, that I tried to fight for them. I tried to fight to be with them and I couldn't. And that was, that was so hard. And, um, by some miracle, like I said, these sirens came and he heard them and he got up off of me. And then the, I heard the neighbors call and they're like, Hey, come over here, come over here. And I couldn't see, I had my contacts in, they were all bloody and blurry. I couldn't see. All I could see was like light from the streetlights. So I, I grabbed the knife and I ran across the street towards the voices. And I remember just collapsing on my back in the yard, just collapsing. And they were on the phone with 911 and they were asking me, you know, who did this to you? And I told them and, you know, what did he do to you? And I, how many times did he stab you or what happened? You know, and I didn't know. And I just remember, I remember crying and, and asking them if I was going to die. Like, am I going to die? I didn't know how many times he had stabbed me at that point. And it was cold. I mean, there was a, a blanket of snow on the ground. I was freezing and I was just waiting for paramedics to get there. And I was so scared, right? Like so scared. And then I remembered that my infant son was sleeping up on the second floor of the house and I went belligerent. Like I started screaming. I was hysterical. I'm like, get my baby out of the house, get my fucking baby out of that house. Like get him out. And all I could think, all I could think he was up there murdering our child. Right. Because you hear about this stuff all the time. And but I couldn't do anything. I had to lay there. I had no strength. I couldn't get up. And shortly thereafter, paramedics arrived they pulled oh, me into the ambulance i'm sorry michelle i think you're yep. uh came it's down okay. a little bit can there you hear you me okay yep can so, hear you now. so yeah. shortly after the paramedics arrived and they took me into the ambulance and they cut off all my clothes and they were looking for for stab wounds and things and um i remember one of the the ems guys was like looking at my cheek and he just kind of like 
looked at it like, are those bite marks? And I said, yeah, those are bite marks. And he just kind of, you know, like couldn't believe that that was what, what they're, what, what they were. Um, but I remember, you know, two different things when I was in the ambulance and it was one that, Hey, Michelle, we have Matt Terry, he's in custody. And I was like, thank God. Right. And then the second one very shortly after that was we have your baby. He's okay. He's fine. And thank God. yes. And that's like all I needed to hear at that point. And I passed out. Um, I don't remember much until I got to the hospital. Um, and I, I only remember uh, just a little bit like waking up in the trauma room and they were telling me that they were taking pictures and that they were like measuring um, the puncture wounds and things so that they could document everything. And I remember laying there and, and looking to my left and I saw um, my mom and my brother and my sister-in-law and they had the baby. And um, I can't tell you as a mother, like, just to see my baby and know that he was okay. And that was, again, all I needed. And I, I fell back asleep until the next morning. Um, and then the next morning, my room, you know, was crawling with detectives and police. And um, the entire floor of the hospital was on lockdown for the five days that I was in ICU um, so that he couldn't come and, you know, nobody could come in and hurt me. Um, yeah. So you had to have your name on the list and there were only certain people that could get in and get out. And, uh, you know, we had CPS there. CPS got involved because the child was in the house when all this happened. And um, just it was it was a crazy, crazy few days of. But now, why did they have to lock down your floor? Because shouldn't he already be in jail? They they already was, had him. So he was at another hospital at the time. He was, um, I think he was at McLaren and I was at Sparrow. Um, they, they took us, obviously, to separate hospitals. But I think the concern was that he would send people or something would happen. Um, and so they had the entire floor on lockdown. I don't know if that's yeah. just protocol for like serious circumstances like this or how that works. I just know that nobody was allowed in um, wow. unless they had their name on a list and it was only like three or four people um, that could come see me. So. It, and, and how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for five days in ICU. Um, I had a concussion, a broken nose, uh, seven stab wounds, um, a ton, uh, like a ton of bumps, bruises, scratches, things like that. My face was, completely black and blue, like you wouldn't be able to recognize me at all. Uh, I remember, um, oh, and my molar was busted. He busted my molar out too. Um, but I, I went to the, to the restroom when I was there after like day three, I had to have help getting to the bathroom because I was suffering from like severe dizziness for like six months. Um, but I remember trying not to look in the mirror because I didn't, I didn't want to see what I look like. And when I turned around, even though I tried not to see my reflection, I had to wash my hands, you know, and I just looked up and I just remember, you know, I didn't even look anything like myself and I just started bawling. Like, I just couldn't believe any of it was real. Like, how does somebody do this to somebody else? And, um, Unimaginable. I, I never thought in a million years that this would happen to me. And how long was he in the hospital? Um, so he had no injuries. <laughs> uh, he had, you know, a couple of scratches on like his hand, but he had no injuries. And I believe they only kept him for a day, maybe two. And then he was taken to jail. Um, yeah. And 
am I recalling this correctly that he was bailed out of jail before you got out of the hospital? So I think that that part is a little incorrect. So he, he was taken to jail. We went through the first couple court hearings. Um, but then his, his parents had bailed him out on a $250,000 cash bond, um, to get him out. And <laughs> as you can imagine, I was absolutely terrified, uh, until, you know, he was finally convicted and, and sentenced and put back in, in jail where he belonged. But it was, it was a nightmare for months, you know? So that was, you know, that was probably around May when he got, um, he got bonded out and he didn't get formally sentenced and put back in prison until what, October of that year. So it was, it was, a uh, months of sleeping with a knife next to my bed, um, getting a CPL and having, a, you know, having the conceal and carry and buying a gun and going to shooting practice and having alarms on my car and having to talk to work the you know, the safety people at work to make sure that they knew that I was in danger and, you know, just constantly, like not even wanting to go out to take my trash at night because I was afraid. I was afraid he was going to come for me or someone was going to come for me. Right. And there was just no peace. There was no peace. And, um, and it was hard because I know, I don't know how well you knew Matt, like as a, a person, um, he doesn't back down. Um, he would just, any, any court hearing, anything he could fight, he would fight just to fight it, just to show that he had control. And it was like, he just kept trying to beat me down over and over and over and over. And his family was funding all of this. So he, you know, they just paying for this attorney that was probably ungodly, like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000, um, and all of his fees. And, and like, you know, I, I had filed for a restraining order against him and he fought that in court. And he's like, well, I don't deserve to have this restraining order. And it's like, what, why are you fighting this? Like, just worry about your other stuff, you know, but just every little thing. Um, and then he was, he was fighting for custody for our son at the same time. So we had the criminal case. We had the family court case where he was trying to get custody or visitation with his son. And we also had the CPS case. So you can imagine like most of my week was spending court hearings for months, for months. Um, but it turned out he, he mostly used the custody case to kind of get information for the trial. Really? Um, yeah. So they had, I had to do depositions and things for the, the family court case where it was very clear that they were getting information to be able to then use in the criminal case. So, um, yeah. What kind of information do you think that they were looking for? Just anything. Um, just anything. They, in a deposition, they can pretty much ask you whatever they want. Right. Yeah. So I was in like three, four, five hour long depositions where they were just asking anything and everything, just trying to find anything they could use to help his case. Um, so this and of course, all... he never testified because if he did, he would incriminate himself. So right. it's like. Um, so this happens in March. He uh-huh. gets out of jail in May. Is May-ish. Yeah, I May. can't okay. believe. Yeah. And then he didn't go back in until October. So Correct. during this time. October, this November. May to October, November. You're, you're in the middle of a CPS case. He is actively trying to get some form of custody with, with yes. the child yes while while this is all going on yes. and you're fearing for your life yes and have to go out and 
secure protection for yourself and secure. And I'm trying to heal. I'm trying to move all my crap out of his place, find a new place, make sure my kids aren't, you know, too, you know, trying to keep their life as normal as I can without keep, you know, trying to keep things consistent for them. There was so much, so much uh, logistics, so much stuff that had to be done. Um, How does somebody, uh, you know, almost murder the the mother of the child and then also i mean that's just unfathomable to me that somebody could then still go through the whole process to try to get custody yeah. that it didn't just get laughed out of court like you it, it was a serious trial oh absolutely absolutely yeah wow. because um maybe it's just in the state of michigan but they refuse like <laughs> they always want to um have the parents have a place in the child's life. And I got told many times that he only hurt me. He didn't hurt our son. <laughs> right. Exactly. Think about that. Wow. So they were willing to let him be a part of our child's life because he didn't hurt our child. He only hurt me. How long did that particular case go on? The family court case? Yeah. Um, so pretty much all three of those cases went on the through the duration until he was taken back to jail. Um, I believe the CPS case and the family court case may have gone slightly longer just because they had to close some things up like at the end. Um, but the part that really was extremely frustrating to me was it was the family court case like that was really I, I just shook my head so many times because I didn't understand the logic. Right. But at that time when CPS was involved, it was my understanding that CPS could choose to terminate his parental rights. Like the state could choose to do that based on the circumstances. And I all but begged them to do that. And they refused. They would not terminate his parental rights. And so, which meant that he could still fight, you know, he still had rights. So he, he tried to um, fight to have me take him to the prison to visit him, our, our son. Um, yeah. And Did, I, so was then he after successful the, in that, Did, were you forced to take the child? I was not to forced to take him. No, I was not forced to take him to the prison. Um, but I had tried to terminate his rights separately on like a personal, on my own, on a, like a private case. Um, and at the end, the judge said he didn't have jurisdiction. Um, so we went through months and months of trying to terminate his rights and I still couldn't do it again a second time. Uh, so it's really frustrating and it's just really frustrating. So it, does Matt still have parental rights at this, at this point? He does. What does that entitle him to at this point? He can fight for parenting time via zoom or via prison visits. I mean, he can technically, if they approve it, he can, he can do whatever he wants. And knowing him, I mean, he'll file just to file just to be just to be a dick about it, right? Just to know that it's getting to me and to know that it's giving me anxiety and making me sick. And, you know, it's just it goes it shows you the whole ego narcissistic Matt Terry way, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that's what it's always been about. It's never been about our son. It's about it's been about showing me that he's going to win, showing me that he has the control, showing me that he has the power. And, uh, and that's all it's ever been about. My God. And, um, so what happened with the criminal 
case uh, for the attempted murder of sure. you. What what happened through that case? So I was explained when we went into the trial that it's very hard to prove intent. And he was charged with, you know, assault with intent to murder, right? Attempted murder. We weren't able to improve, to prove fully that, or beyond a reasonable doubt that he intended to murder me, even he though stabbed you seven times and yes. in, including one in the throat. And, and he that chased me outside and um, he claimed self-defense. He claimed that that was self-defense, which as soon as he was chasing How after me to stab earth? me, that's not, I know. How on earth um, did he did self-defense? How how was that even possible? This is just what what he was saying. He was saying it was self-defense. Um, all of his friends and family, he had convinced that it was self-defense. And I will, I mean, he was a marine. I don't know if you know he was a marine. Yeah, right. He was a trained marine. He was trained in in wrestling. He he knew how to shoot guns. He knew how to do all this. Right. I'm not a very big person. Right. I'm I'm not very strong. Like. He doesn't need to defend himself against me, but he... And he had no wounds, right? He, he had no wounds, correct. He he beat the living shit out of me to the point that I was no almost no longer here. And yet that was self-defense to him. Um, so we could not... At the end of the day, he, he went in with that charge. Um, there was that charge and then a couple other minor charges. He ultimately only got found on a... Um, assault with intent to do great bodily harm less than murder, which serves a significantly less sentence. Um, so instead of facing life in prison, he was then only sentenced to three to 10 years in prison. Oh my God. Which was like a huge kick in the gut. Um, and I remember saying that I was super pissed off because if there was a dead body, then maybe he would have spent life in prison. But because there wasn't, because somehow I had fought and somehow by some fucking miracle survived that he wasn't going to be held accountable and it just it was hard it was hard and I know that the prosecutor that was on my case and the detective on my case were both very upset that that's the only sentence that he got and I remember the detective walked me out to the car the day that he got sentenced and he he was very upset just visibly and I, I we had a conversation and and I told him I said you know what I said at least he's going to prison for the time he's going to prison for and I said I guarantee you when he gets out he is gonna do it again a hundred percent he's gonna do it again and when he does we're gonna fucking get him we're gonna get him that time and sure as shit you know he did do it again um, I had no yeah. doubt in my mind I expected it to take a little longer um, a few years, maybe not as quickly as it did um, happen, but but I had told him, I'm like, you know, we're going to get him again. We're going to get him. One of these days, we're going to get him. And you know, I didn't know if he would come back to target me or if he would have a new target. I didn't know. Um, I just knew he would do it again. And I told and everybody. I told everybody this. And nobody. It's like nobody listened. Nobody cared. Nobody gave a shit about my safety or my kids' safety. It was all about. Oh, well, Matt's a model prisoner. He's doing all the right things. His behavior is so good. And it's like, okay, <laughs> he's the most manipulative person I know that I've ever met in my entire life. And you think he's just doing this because he's a good person? No. And now during this trial, um, you mentioned to me previously that a couple of his ex-girlfriends 
yeah. came out saying that they had similar or not similar, but that they had domestic domestic issues with Matt during their relationship. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and they actually came forward uh, in 2017 when I was going through the trial with him and said, you know, they came forward to support me and told me their stories. And so ever since then, we have been, um, you know, in communication. We just actually talked this morning. So I still chat with them. Wow. Um, one of them was a college girlfriend uh, who, and I don't know all of the details, so um, don't quote me on any of this, but apparently he had broken into her home, um, chased her and her, her friend around the yard at the time. And then when the police came, he just pretended like he was just chasing them around, like it was all, you know, fun, whatever. Um, but I mean, she was truly terrified and he had a, he had a felony charge at that point, but they weren't, they weren't sure that they could get him convicted on the felony charge. And so they broke it up into multiple misdemeanors. And so he was ultimately charged with some of those misdemeanors, but not that felony charge. Um, so he had a criminal record going into this, but not a felony, the the misdemeanors, but... Correct. Uh, yeah. And, from... and he had a, a DUI or two and stuff too on there. Yeah. Um, so yes, he did have some charges from previous. And his, his wife, the um, she, I don't think he ever physically, he never physically assaulted her from what I understand, but he would definitely um, throw things, um, you know, scream, yell, intimidate, try to control in that way. Um, to the point where his daughter that was living with them would be terrified and they would lock themselves in bedrooms to try and, you know, get away from him. Oh, God. And he had thrown a frying pan at you in the past, right? He did. Um, so this was, oh gosh, like early in 2017, like not too far um, ahead of the, the incident on St. Patrick's Day, but I was at my breaking point with a relationship and I had, he was, he was cooking like eggs or something on, on the stove and I was feeding our son in the kitchen. And I said, you know, we really need to talk about what we're doing with this relationship because I'm not happy and we need to figure something out. And I just remember he, he stopped what he was doing. He still was staring at the stove and he took the cast iron pan that he was cooking in and he turned around and he heaved it at us. And the way that he threw it, luckily us. it hit. He threw it at us? me and my infant son that I was feeding. I mean, he, I was right there at the high chair. Um, so he had taken this pan and luckily it ricocheted off the wall and it missed us. But instantly, as any parent would, I got pissed off and I'm like, why did you do that? Like, you could have hurt us. You could have, you know, that could have hit us. And he's like, no, I knew what I was doing. It wasn't going to hit you. I'm like, why would you even fucking throw a pan at us anyway? Wow. Like, what? You know? And um, so then at that point, he he got angry at me. Um, and he took his hand and he took everything that was on the kitchen counter and he like threw it off onto the floor as he walked past it and he walked out into the garage and, um, as he was walking out into the garage, I'm like, do I need to call the police? Like, I, I don't know what's going on right now, but do I need to call the police? And he just went out into the garage, shut the door and I was shaken up, but I was still feeding the baby. And he came back in a couple of minutes later and he said, I'm sorry. And he put his arm around me and he said, I would never hurt you or our child. And that was literally a handful of weeks before he did what he did. Unbelievable. Now, during the trial, during, was Kay Baker there at that trial? So Matt, Terry and Kay Baker had been longtime friends, I think like 20 something years. And from what I understand, they had dated in the past. Um, but she was a part of the big friend group that they had. And so she was there to support him. 
I wasn't able to be in the courtroom most of the time, so I didn't really get to see all the trial because I had to testify at the end. Um, but she did testify for him and for his character, and uh, and she was there. I mean, I remember seeing her, and yeah. So he gets sentenced to three to ten years and doesn't get sentenced for the attempted murder, gets a lesser charge. Yeah. What was he like as a prisoner? How did he end up getting out of prison? And how long did he end up serving of that sentence? So he only served three years of that sentence, which is the, the absolute minimum. Um, I was supposed to, at least I was told uh, when he got sentenced that when he was to get paroled, that I would get a letter and I would be um, able to speak to the, the Michigan Department of Corrections Parole Board to be able to at least have them hear my story before they made a decision. That's not how that happened. Uh, I got a letter. I think it was in July of 20. Oh gosh, I can't remember when he got out now. December of 2020, I think. But it was the summer before he, he was yeah, due to be Yeah, I think it was December 2020 paroled. that he got out. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I got a letter from the parole board saying we've made a decision in this case. He's he's estimated to be paroled. I think it was like September or something. And this is... Year. And this is, as everybody knows, this is during COVID too. It is during COVID. So yeah. did that play into this release? So the, I don't have answers to that. I did ask that question because I know that during that time they were looking at releasing prisoners of nonviolent um, crimes. I don't think COVID necessarily played into that. Um, what I do know is that they were very adamant that it was like, he didn't need to be in prison because he was doing all these good things. He was teaching all the, all the prisoners, good things. He was taking classes. He was bettering himself. He was, he was basically like this model prisoner, right? Like he was doing everything the right way. And of course he was because he's manipulative. He knows how to play the game. He knows how to do all the things that he needs to do when he needs to do them to get what he wants. And that's exactly what he was doing. And that's exactly what I told all of them. Um, exactly what I told them. But I instantly went into a panic. Um, as soon as I got that letter, I was like in tears. I, it was on a, like, I didn't check my mail for a day. So I got it on a Sunday and I, I just remember wanting to call somebody, like wanting to, to communicate with someone to find out what the hell's going on. And I couldn't call anyone. And it was so stressful till Monday um, when I started being able to reach out to people. But then I called the courts and I'm like, what do I do to appeal this? And they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know how, I'm like, what the hell? So then it took me two more weeks to find an attorney that could hopefully help me appeal. Um, and we did, uh, you know, and then ultimately they denied, they denied the appeal. Even after I sent a very lengthy letter with pictures and saying, look, you're my last hope for safety. You're my last hope for justice. I'm in danger. My children are in danger. Will you please, please reconsider this? And they didn't. <laughs> I, d I didn't even get the courtesy to speak with a real person. They just made me write a letter. And and as I recall, you mentioning the, the prosecutor even did something kind of extraordinary and wrote on your behalf, right? Absolutely. Yes. So when I, when I got the letter, I reached out to the prosecutor and I said, this can't be happening. Like, this is crazy. Like what he did, he's going to be out in three years. He's going to do this to somebody else. Um, and so she had her boss, uh, which Carol Simon, I think is her name, um, had written a letter to the Michigan Department of Corrections Parole Board and said, based on the circumstances and based on what happened, I'm asking, and I don't think this was enough, right? But she was asking for, instead of only one year of parole, to have two years of parole so that hopefully he didn't um, he didn't commit another crime in that time frame. 
but one year of parole versus two year, it's still a joke. But from what I understand, that's kind of an unheard move. Hmm. Um, Like they just don't do that. They don't write letters like that. But in this case they did. And the parole board, again, they just decided to ignore that letter. So on December of 2020, Matt Terry gets out of prison. Yes. And only serves three years of the three to 10 year sentence. And now he has one year of probation or parole, excuse me. Yes. um, After that. But he still has parental rights for your son. Yes. And I understand you wanted to move to get some safety for you and your son. Mm -hmm. Were you allowed to move? So, yes, I was allowed to move. Ultimately, Um, I had to file with the the family courts both to move my oldest son and my youngest son, that's Matt's child, um, to move out of the state. And I I did that as soon as I knew he was getting paroled because I knew it was going to take some time. I knew I had to get the hell out of there. I didn't want him 20 minutes from me, right? Um, So ultimately, I was allowed to move with my children. Um, But that was, he had fought me in any way that he could to, to stop me from moving. Um, and it was just, it was just a nightmare. Like it seemed, it was supposed to last three, four months. It lasted like just over a year, I think that, that fight. And so I was going back and forth, flying back and forth to my new job that I had found out of state, you know, trying to like juggle all this court stuff, trying to not lose my job because they kept extending and extending and extending. Um, but he was kind of hoping that the longer he would drag it out, that maybe I would lose my job. And then that would give me one less thing that I could say I have ready to go if they give me the approval. Um, but from what I understand, like moving with a child out of state like that is is very hard um, to get approval for. And, and they did ultimately allow me to move with both of my children, which I was, I was grateful for. But we had to live in the state like a year or six, six months to a year, like after he was already paroled and out. Um, before we could actually leave, physically leave. But as soon as we got the approval, I was out. I was gone. Like, I couldn't leave fast enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did Matt exercise his visitation rights or anything during that time? Um, so he, at that time, he didn't have parental rights. He was, I mean, he had parental rights. I, let me correct myself. He has parental rights. But he didn't have any visitation at the time because I was able to just kind of keep him away at that point so far. Um, he was fighting me actively um, in court to get some sort of visitation, some sort of custody, whatever, um, when he did get out of prison uh, and was able to. The courts ultimately told me that I couldn't keep him from his son, that he still had parental rights. And again, they they knew. They, they knew exactly what happened. But this is where the, well, he hurt you, he didn't hurt your son crap came into play again. And... Um, the judge at the end, after we worked our way up to the judge, she ultimately told me, you know, I don't care that you don't like it. Um, he's going to see his son and you're going to have to go to therapy for PTSD to get over it and deal with it. And what do you, and I'm like, if I don't do what the judge says, I could go to jail. I could be held in contempt. And so what they, what they did was they, um, got a reunification therapy therapist. So, um, and the goal with that is obviously to bring that other parent back into the life of the child. Um, because we had lived in a different state at the time this was ordered, there were zoom sessions. So the therapist 
and my son, who, keep in mind, had never really met his dad. He he was nine months old when, you know, the last time he had seen him. He didn't know him. Mm-hmm. He was forced to have these 10, 15-minute Zoom calls with this guy that's his dad that he didn't know and a therapist um, a couple times a month. And I had to take him to have these Zoom calls. And it was up to the reunification therapist how quickly... Um, how quickly in-person sessions would, would take place. And so only after like two or three months, so just a handful of Zoom sessions, she was like, oh, okay, well, you know, Matt's going to come here for a Saturday and Sunday here in like a month. And um, I want you to bring your son in and I'm going to sit here in the office with him and, and we're going to have three or four hours where they can just sit together and, and get to know each other. And I, as you can imagine, my my head was I was my brain was freaking out like what the hell right now, um all I could imagine was they're in a room together and he murders her or he murders my son or whatever but what I couldn't do anything like do I go to jail, the, then my child doesn't have any any parent you know like what do I do and so, I was dreading dreading that moment but I had to arrange it so we had it arranged. And, I believe it was only like a couple weeks before that was to take place, I got the phone call about what happened in Florida. And so it never happened. So you were telling people, anybody that would listen, that if Matt Terry got out of prison, he would murder someone again. I have it written down in many documents, yes. And there were people there testifying on his behalf, one of those being Kay Baker. Yes. Can you tell us about the story of Kay Baker and what happened from your perspective? So I I found out during the trial in 2017 that Kay and Matt had reconnected. And while he was in jail, they were having jail calls together and she had fallen back in love with him. And she was essentially like his outside help. He was, um, it was very clear to me that he was using her and manipulating her to get information and to get help from the outside that he couldn't do from the inside. Right. Um, so I would find that she would be looking on my LinkedIn profile and like finding my blogs that I was writing. And so like some of these things I had to stop doing because I didn't want any of that information getting out to people that are spying on it. Right. And I knew she was, she was spying. Um, but again, you know, I, I don't, fault her for any of this. I understand how manipulative he is and how he can make people think certain things. Um, anyway, so they, they continued these phone calls from what I understand for the duration of his three years in prison. Uh, once he was paroled for that year, my understanding is that she would come up from Florida and she would come visit him in Michigan, like every other weekend when she didn't have her two children until he was not on parole anymore. And then I believe it was March of 2022 when he had moved to Florida to live with her. Um, and then on, on the early morning. Can you get morning, the uh, mic again, Michelle? Sorry. Yeah. There Sorry. we go. No, no problem. So he had moved down in March of 2022-ish timeframe to live with Kay Baker and then I received the call on May 28th um, about what had happened. So five months after he was off parole, he had already reoffended. And 
what did you receive for that phone call and uh, how did that go down and what ended up happening to Kay Baker? So I was on a family trip back to Michigan um, just to see, you know, family over Memorial weekend. And I was sitting at the table in the kitchen, just talking to my mom and my phone started to ring and I looked down and it's again, it's um one of the two women that came forward. So this was Matt's ex-wife. She had called me and it was just kind of, weird. I instantly got a bad feeling because she doesn't normally call me. Like we text and we, you know, stuff like that, but just phone calls are just kind of different. Right. So I had a really bad feeling and I picked up the phone and she was like just hysterical. And it took me a minute to calm her down. I'm like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And she's like, oh my God, he did it. He did it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like who did, who did what? And I, I walked outside to have more of a private conversation and, um, She's like, he, he fucking killed her. I'm like, who, what? And she's like, he killed Kay. And I said, Matt? And she said, yeah, he fucking, he killed her. And you told everybody, Michelle, you told him and nobody fucking listened and he killed her. And I just, it, I can't even tell you the feeling that I felt at that moment. It was like, like the air got kicked out of my lungs. My heart fell to the floor. I felt like collapsing. I couldn't breathe. It was, um. I mean, it took me a minute to kind of even realize what I was being told. Even though I knew without a shadow of a doubt he was going to do this again, it was still very shocking because I guess I hoped I was wrong. I hoped I was wrong and I, I wasn't. I was 100% right. And what it did for me, though, is it validated that those feelings were real. I wasn't overreacting. I didn't leave the state because I was, you know, just freaking out about nothing. Like, it was real. He was dangerous. He is dangerous. And it made me feel better about my decisions to keep my, myself and my family safe because he really was that horrible of a human that he would he would do this to somebody. And you warned Kay Baker that she was going to be murdered, didn't you? I didn't specifically say she was going to be murdered, um, but I did send her a message during um, the trial in 2017, I sent her a picture of myself in the emergency room where I was pretty uh, badly beaten up. And um, I sent that to her and I said, please don't let this be you. He's very manipulative. He's not who you think he is. And she pretended at that point not to know what I was talking about and, and not to, you know, to say she wasn't talking to him. And at that point, I knew there was no way to get through to her. I just know I had to send the message. I sent the message and I, I was, it was on Facebook Messenger and I, I blocked her immediately after that because I'm like, I communicated what I needed to. If she doesn't want to listen to me, I can't make her. I can't yeah. make her. Um, but trust me, I was, I was so scared for her. I was so scared for her. And there was another time, you know, and she had, um, when he was fighting for custody, she came and testified for him in, at the custody case as well, saying that he was around her children, that he was trustworthy, that he was safe. And during that whole hearing, I was, it was a Zoom call and I was just shaking my head. Like I wasn't even realizing I was shaking my head, like, oh my God. And the court referee finally like yelled at me and she's like, Michelle, you have to stop shaking your head. Like you can't do that. And I'm just thinking, I am scared to death for this girl and her children. Like something bad is going to happen. Like she doesn't, she just doesn't see it. So Matt gets off of parole uh, around the time of December, 2021, ends up moving to Florida to be with Kay Baker around yes. March 
of 2022. Yes. What happened from your vantage point on May 28th, 2022? So I, I didn't know when I got the phone call, all of the details around what had happened. I, I found out later that they had gone to some bar and apparently there was some guy that had made a comment in passing just, or like was dancing, like in passing, just kind of like danced real quick next to her and walked away. And it, it wasn't anything. It was just, you know, if you're at the bar, everybody's having fun. Like it's not a big deal. Um, apparently that really made Matt angry. At least they think that's what made him angry. Um, and then when they went home that night, apparently Kay and one of her friends had been talking on the phone and Matt was still very angry in the car and they were kind of making fun of him and telling him it wasn't a big deal, blah, 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 blah. Uh, when they got home, um, I, from, again, from my understanding, there was a text that was sent from Kay's phone and, and they do believe it wasn't her that sent the text, but it was, Hey, everything's fine. Matt's okay. Now we're, we're good. Good night. Something like that. Right. And then shortly thereafter, we find out that, you know, there was a, a pretty gruesome scene and uh, she had nearly had her head decapitated because he, he had stabbed her a bunch and tried to, you know, slit her throat. So he almost did the exact same style of assault that he did to you previously the knife the knife to the throat the multiple stabbings it it's, it's, eerily, it's eerie really it's very yeah. eerie she had two sons i have two sons it happened on a friday um during a holiday weekend uh and it, now one of the things that it looked like he had um adjusted his plan mm -hmm. it appears as though Matt Terry tried to hide in the woods and may have potentially, well, when he was discovered, he had his own lacerations this time. And we know that he tried to say that it was self-defense in the incident with you. Do you think that he was just improving his story this time by, you know, putting these potential lacerations you know, these, these knife wounds on himself. What do you think happened there? So I think he just gets better every time he does it. Right. Practice makes perfect. And he nearly perfected uh, what he was trying to do, but they did suggest that because of the way the wounds were in his neck, it was um, most likely self-inflicted. It wasn't from somebody else. And he may have claimed self-defense for some portion of the trial, but ultimately they were trying to say that, it was some other person. It was some other person that came and attacked them both. And they just both ran and they never found the weapon. They never found the knife, which they think it was thrown in like a swamp or something that was near the house. So they're never going to be able to recover that. Um, but you know, part of me wonders, was he trying to kill himself? Um, Cause he had, he stabbed himself on two sides on either side of his throat. Um, so was he trying to stab himself and kill himself or was he really trying to really play the part of having somebody else attack him? And so he wouldn't be found guilty um, in killing Kay. But I mean, she had stab wounds in her right shoulder. She had, you know, obviously uh, the slit throat and um, he just got better at what he knows how to do.
the judge in Florida was pretty, pretty direct. Um, as I uh, recall, it was the judge said at his sentencing, I believe you should have been in prison in Michigan and Miss Baker should still be alive. This is Florida. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's, that's pretty harsh for a judge to say, I would think that seems pretty direct. How how many times I have watched that clip and how many times, because I loved it. I was there for that when he said that. And I, all I could think was fuck. Yes. Finally, finally, somebody got it right. They got it right. Unfortunately, we lost a life that we shouldn't have lost, but he's finally back where he needs to be. And it's life in prison with no chance for parole. None. He's not going to do this to anybody else. And that's all I've ever wanted is for him never to do this to anybody else. Yeah. How did that make you feel when you, I mean, cause you had to go down there and testify and relive everything again and yeah. go through all of that once again and take time out of your life for all the, all the stuff that you've already been put through. You had to go through it again for a new trial. Uh, I, I can't even imagine what that made you feel like. Except this time people believed me. Ah, right. So you had some, some vindication. Had a lot, had vindication, had a lot of people backing me now that didn't believe me before. Yeah. Um, Did you ever get an apology for anybody in Michigan government or? I, (laughs) I have never gotten anything from Michigan. I've reached out to multiple uh, news sources, everything, trying to get someone to talk about it up there and nobody will, nobody will even talk about it. Um, I don't know. Unbelievable. But when I, when I got that phone call, you know, on, on May 28th, um, I immediately looked up, I, I Google searched it and I found a news article that was written, uh, I believe by the Tampa Bay times. And I found the author of that article, um, and called and emailed and finally got a response back. And then I was got it, or I was able to get in touch with a detective and the prosecutor on that case. And at the same time, um, I had reached out to the prosecutor and the detective from my case through email and said, look, this is what's going on in Florida. We need to get all over this. And they immediately got in contact with the people down in Florida. We got them all the the videos, the documentation, everything they needed, like probably as quick as you could. I mean, we were all over it. And there was never, there was never a point where I'm like, I shouldn't do this. It was like, no, this fucker is getting put away this time. And I don't care if I'm in danger. I don't care. He is going to go where he belongs. And that was really just, you know, there were people that were concerned and they're like, you know, do you think this is, this is okay? Like you're in danger if you go testify for this person that murdered this other person. But there was just no question in my mind. It was just, it was what I had to do. It was what I had to do for me, for, for justice, finally, for the safety of me and my kids. It's what I had to do for Kay Baker and her family and, and justice for them. There was just no, to me, there was no other option. It was just, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And so I... I told them, I'm like, I will do whatever it takes. You just tell me when and where, and I will be there. At, at your trial, there were people there speaking for Matt and character witnesses for him and claiming that he was still a good guy. And what did those same people show up at his second trial for the murder of Kay Baker? Where did he still have people standing beside him trying to testify on behalf of his character? So I don't, really know. Um, again, I wasn't really allowed 
to hear any of that prior to my testimony. I was only allowed in after I testified. So I'm not sure if there, there were any of those people. I do know that when they had the second portion of the trial, which was um, determining whether or not he would receive a, a death penalty sentence or just life in prison, um, that there you know, were multiple members of his family to testify to say that you know he, he doesn't deserve the death penalty. Uh, but as far as like character witnesses in the first part, I don't, I don't know. Hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The whole thing is just crazy. And even now being convicted of DUIs and the lesser, you know, a great bodily injury, uh, for the assault and stabbing of you should have been attempted murder. And then the murder of Kay Baker, he still has parental rights with your son? He does. And, uh, I mean, I do plan to try and terminate them again, um, but that's not an inexpensive endeavor. And, uh, you know, hopefully they'll do it this time. It's, un but it's unbelievable. It should be an automatic, sorry, you don't get to be a parent anymore. But yeah. it's, it doesn't work that way. Doesn't right, because it's, it's just torturing you the entire time of you have to relive it and yeah. you have to and it's torturing out. my son who has to interact with his dad that he doesn't know right like yeah. the courts are the whole system is fucked up it's fucked up and on so many levels and i like like i said there were just times i had to shake my head and just like i you just can't believe some of the things that they allow And your son would be about five or six now? My son's seven now. Seven now? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, that's, I have a five-year-old and, you know, seven, he, he probably knows what's going on. He's probably wondering, you know, and, and feel free if you don't want to talk about this, but yeah, no, how, do you how do you address that? How do you handle that with your son? So I haven't really addressed it yet. I, I will say that when we were forced to do the reunification therapy sessions, that that therapist decided it would be best to just rip off the Band-Aid um, with my son, uh, which I didn't agree with, but this was what I had to go with, right? I had to do what she said. Um, so my son knows that his dad exists, that his dad was in prison for hurting his mom, and that his dad wanted a relationship with him. And that's pretty much the extent of what he knows. And as soon as those Zoom visits stopped, he has not once ever asked about his dad again. Not once. And so I haven't fully addressed that. He's, he's only seven. He's not going to understand any more than that at this point in his life. I think that there's definitely going to be some stuff we have, to, we have to go to therapy for and really talk through as he gets older and starts realizing more of what really happened and, um, and dealing with, with that, because I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine growing up one day to find out that my dad is in prison for life for, for killing somebody like that. That alone is just a lot. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how I'm going to approach that. And all I can do is just go day by day and, um, and just, do that, I guess. Yeah. What are some of the things that are wrong with our criminal justice system? And if you had a magic wand, would there be a few things that you would change? Or is it a lot of things that need to change? Or 
How do you I think mean, of it? And it's really, it's a lot of things, but I, I think the biggest thing is like, I felt like I was the one on trial. Like I had to prove in every way possible that I wasn't the liar and that he would kind of had the upper hand through the whole thing because the, the people that are charged with stuff, like, I don't know, they just, it feels like they have more rights. Like he didn't have to testify at all for anything yet. He could sit there and have me do a deposition three different times and put me through misery and keep filing over and over and over and just um, like legally, you know, abusing me through the legal system. And it was allowed and it was allowed for him to continue to control me through the family court system. And it, it was allowed through the CPS, you know, case that, that he was still allowed to be a parent. Like none of this makes sense to me. Like the logic behind it is just so messed up. And I guess I just want people to listen. I am not the first person that has been through a situation like this, and I definitely won't be the last. But I think that people need to start listening to survivors of, you know, domestic violence and and really considering what we have to say. We're not just making shit up. Like, we know our lives are in danger. We know how scared we are. And yet the system still allows for them to to have that abuse, um, to be able to abuse us in in other ways, even if it's not you know, coming up and hitting us upside the head, they're, they're doing it through the legal system. Um, and I don't know how to stop that. I, I just know that it's just not right. What they're doing isn't right. And, um, you know, and going back to the whole Michigan parole board thing, I should have been able to speak. I should have been able to look them all in the eye and tell them why I was scared for my life. I shouldn't have been forced to get a letter in the mail, be scared for my life, and then try to appeal for thousands and thousands of my own dollars to not have a voice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they were more concerned with how good of a prisoner he was than, than my safety, than the safety of my children, than the safety of society. Mm -hmm. They didn't give a shit what I had to say. They truly didn't. <laughs> do you think that Florida has a different criminal justice system than Michigan? Or do you think that that played into... Or do you think it was just different circumstances for the different cases? I don't. Probably a little of both. I I can't compare Michigan and Florida's systems because you know they're. I, I just don't, I don't know the differences between the two. But I can pretty much guarantee you that no matter where you go, you're going to have you're going to have issues. You're going to have things like this that are going to be issues across the board. I couldn't tell you specifically what those are, but you know, I don't know how to change any of those things. I would love to be able to know how to fight for these things, but I don't. And so that's why I'm here talking with you. And that's why I'm trying to talk with anybody who will listen, because the only thing I know how to do is I know how to tell my story. I know how to hopefully get people to speak up to, to not be afraid to speak up because the only way that we make it better is when there's more than just me. When there's a group of us, when there's a large group of us, when we all stand up together and we all speak up and we all fight, that's when change happens. I can't do it alone, but I want to be able to share my story so that I can help build. I can help build that. And eventually, hopefully we can create some change because this right. is all bullshit. Right. Do you have any tips or suggestions for people or somebody that might be going through a similar, you know, looking for warning signs or domestic violence? Um, so there's, there's, a, you know, and I, I guess that's one area where it, it kind of depends. I mean, people can go to websites, they can read books, they can learn about the signs of domestic violence. I think the key to take away 
um, especially with my story, is that I've heard people say, well, he doesn't hit me. He's not abusive. And I think that (laughs) it's just um, a huge error in our thinking because Matt Terry never hit me. Not once did he hit me. He manipulated me. He controlled me. He fucked with my head. Not once did he hit me until he nearly took my life. And so for those women out there who are saying, well, he's not abusive. He doesn't hit me. I mean, all it takes is once. And I promise that they're just going to get worse. They're not going to get better. So you're in danger, whether they hit you or not. And if it's abusive, it's abusive and you need to get the hell out. You know, but there's a ton of resources out there for domestic violence. Um, I wish they taught it in schools. I wish they were teaching our children. I wish I wish I knew more because maybe if I had been educated, it wouldn't happen to me. Maybe I would have been more aware of the red flags. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to do my part in sharing my story and trying to teach people so that hopefully I can save some lives because that's all I want. That's all I want. And that's all I've ever wanted. And I couldn't save Kay's. I couldn't, no matter what I did, I couldn't save her, but I will save whoever else I can and whoever else will listen, you know. And it's remarkable what you tried to do for Kay Baker. It really is. I mean, that is, you did everything you possibly could through the, criminal justice system to keep him locked up actually messaging her directly and warning her Uh, i mean you it's really really incredible what you did to try to help her michelle it really is i know i just i i know i did everything i could i just really wish it would have turned out different yeah completely understand well michelle thank you so much for sharing your story and agreeing to talk today. It's been great to get to know you, and I'm sorry that it's over these terrible circumstances. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you.